One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is C.J. Hauser, author of the novel The Frumaways, which tells the story of Leah and Quinn, two young women who come to Maine and begin working at the newspaper in their small town. They stumble upon a story of corruption around a new development that could change the character of their new home forever. Hauser is from Connecticut but currently lives in Florida. We began our discussion talking about her work at a hedge fund before she returned to school to get her MFA in fiction. Oh, it was called Pirate Capital. And actually, it, it's a place that was so epically terrible that there are multiple articles you can find online about all of the practices that involved. But I was extremely naive, and I, I started there as a secretary. And then within the first week, I had been promoted to some other job. And at the end of several months, I was in a business suit taking meetings with multi-billion-dollar Brazilian investors, all because the place was sort of imploding. And I, I had no idea how anything worked. And I kept on asking these questions where I'd be like, I, I don't understand how this works. Can you explain it to me? And I'd say, but that just sounds like gambling to me. Certainly, that can't be how our financial system works. And they would say, no, 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 you just don't understand. It's actually a lot better than that. And years later, when I was sort of mainlining frontline documentaries about the financial crisis, I was thinking, it was like gambling. I understood just fine. I don't understand why they didn't just admit it at the time. A lot of writers have questions nagging at them they want to explore in their work. And I'm wondering when you started writing if you had this experience. I think I did. Um, I think the stories that I was writing back then were maybe stories I needed to get out of my system to get to writing other things. And they were all sort of um, the road not traveled stories, which I think is something that a lot of young writers do when they first start out. In fact, I think a lot of people's first novels tend to be 
hometown stories or road not traveled stories. So I think I was wondering a lot about why the place I grew up in um, was the way it was and what it meant that I had grown up there. I was from a small town in Connecticut. People hear Connecticut and they think John Cheever, which is not incorrect, but it was also extremely, I don't know, John Irving-y, very New England-y. And I think I still had this sort of cultural, geographical hangover from having grown up there and realizing that everyone around me had not come from such a place. And I was really grappling with sort of beautiful and dark things about being from that place as well, a lot of which has trickled into the novel. So your novel, The Fromaways, takes place in Maine and is very entrenched in that culture. Were you thinking about growing up in New England when you were writing about this? I think that I wrote a lot of terrible stories uh, when I first started writing that were sort of getting all the messy emotional parts of thinking about New England out of my system. And then by the time I got to the novel, I was just homesick. I was homesick for the kind of people who lived where I grew up and and I was homesick for that sort of tight-knit, all-up-in-your-business neighborly community. And I think I sort of made this imaginary town in the book Menemon so that I I could live in a place like that sort of part-time while I was, I don't know, in New York City the rest of the time. And so I think it came from the place that I arrived at by writing those first stories. And so why did you choose Maine instead of Connecticut? You know, well, part of it is that I love Maine, and I have a bunch of family who live up there. Um, there are many housers who headed north when Connecticut started feeling not as New Englandy as it used to. But I think, too, there's something about the, the imaginary possibilities of Maine and the way that people tend to romanticize it, which is a big part of the book. I mean, even... Even on all those like Maine tourist campaign signs that they do, it says Maine, the way life should be. So they're really self-propagating this idea as well. Um, and I wanted it to have that place in the character's imagination so that it wasn't just sort of the epitome of a New England town. It was also a place that a character would would idealize and would romanticize and then have to come to, to terms with the reality of later. The term from a ways is what, what Mainers call people who move there from somewhere else. And the the premise of the book is that there's two women, one is Leah and one is Quinn, who move there for their own reasons to this small town in Maine who really want to make it their home. And the story is told in their alternating first-person points of view. They both end up working at the newspaper, so they become pretty entrenched in the town and the goings-on. And it just sort of switches from their personal narratives, their own stories there, and then where their stories intersect. So how did you find the structure and decide that you wanted this to be told by two different women? started with just Leah, and then I started feeling like she was sort of static, like she was She's sort of a a tightly wound neurotic character, and she's very much caught up in her own narratives of the way things work. Um, And I couldn't figure out how to get her sort of out of her comfort zone. Um, And then I actually, it's embarrassing to admit, I actually tossed her away, and I was like, I'm starting the book over with this new character. It's going to be Quinn instead, and it has to do with her father and roommates that she's in love with. And I started writing Quinn, 
And I realized that even though she was a very different character, she too was sort of stubborn and resistant. Um, and I didn't quite know what to do with her either. And then I have this, this very dear friend of mine who I always go to when I'm being cranky and I think things aren't working. And she read both beginnings. And she said, do you realize that they need each other? That these two girls, they would they would be friends. And that's what's going to help them. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, my God, she's right. And I put them together. And I think the process of putting those characters next to each other, that they were the thing, each of them brought the other one out of their comfort zone and elicited something different. And it wasn't until I figured out the relationship between those two women that the book started working. That's so interesting because one of the things I think with writing that people envision is writers are these solitary creatures that just sit there on their own and um, scribble away deep into the night and just keep going. But it seems like for you to get this to click, it involved another person. Talk about that a little bit, about that um, intersection between this solo art and this need for other readers. Yeah, I really think that the sort of lone wolf myth of the writer is, at least for me, is just not personally true at all. I mean, the bulk of the work does happen when you're sort of spinning alone in your room doing whatever you do. But I I think that especially with a novel, because it is so immersive and so all-consuming, that there, there comes a point where you just become sort of blind to what's going on in front of you. And you can set something away and get distance from it. But sometimes just having, I don't know, a little distance in the form of another person is really, really helpful to me. I mean, I couldn't see. In my mind, it was either it was either or with these two characters. And she was the one, my friend Cora was the one who, who from the outside could see the way they could come together. And so I think that, I don't know, introducing new voices into the process has always been really helpful to me. Not not a lot of other voices, not a whole chorus of voices necessarily, but just sort of one or two trusted readers who who know you really well, too. And I think that that's important. Um, there, there are two people who I always, always show my work to, my, my agent and friend, Meredith, and this best friend, Cora. And they're very different readers, but they know how to sort of, I don't know, push my buttons, I suppose. They know sort of the things that, I'm I'm stubborn about or that I'm not going to see and and they know how to sort of wheedle me uh, in just the right way to make me see around myself and examine other possibilities. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
The premise of the story, aside from Leah and Quinn's search for love and family, is not unfamiliar to small towns. It's about developers coming in and wanting to change the character of the town. But there is the added drama that Leah and her husband, who works for the developer, feel differently about the proposed changes. What made you think about this as the plot, and do you think relationships can survive this sort of conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts to it where, in terms of the conflict itself, I mean, I grew up in a small town, and I've seen this so many places where you don't want things to change, and you want the town to stay to stay true to what it is, but you also want the town to sort of thrive and be successful. Um, and that the sorts of changes that happen when a Walmart comes in or someone builds like a large house and invests in the community where you say, no, we don't want that. That's not what we do here. But then when you take a step back and look at it, sometimes you're like, oh, but I can kind of see how this is providing jobs for people or how this is actually good for the community. And and my feelings of being conflicted about that, I guess, manifested in this conflict between Leah and her husband where I feel like the at the emotional heart of the book, people are sort of screaming no to this kind of change. But I wanted Henry, whenever he spoke, to sound like, wait a minute, he might he might be right. Um, even though this isn't the more emotionally appealing part of the plot, like this character is speaking reason. And so I, I like the idea that both the husband and the wife in this relationship were, were right and wrong in their own ways and that not all sort of like marital conflicts come down to like, Oh, this person's a good guy or the bad guy. They just, they just see the future very differently. Um, and they're, they're so young and they've gotten married very quickly. And I think that there's this sort of transformation moment in a relationship where all of a sudden it's like, all right, you're right. And think this way. And I'm right. And I think this way. And we have to find a way to sort of fuse those two things. We both have to give up something. Um, to create sort of a collective identity for ourselves and how hard that is, how how really, really difficult that is. It's a really pride-effacing kind of thing. Um, And I think that in the book, Leah is just not ready for that at all. And and she wants to maintain all of her individuality and, and all of her ideals and sacrifice nothing, but she wants to be in love and in this relationship too. Um, And it's her sort of struggle to understand what having kind of a grown-up, meaningful relationship will take for her to give that I think provides most of the conflict in her chapters. Well, it's interesting, too, because you're you're really commenting on how well do you know someone before you marry them. I mean, for them who dated and married quickly and are 24 years old, you can definitely have this moment of realization where you're like, oh, no, what did I do? Um, <laughs> But I think that can happen with people, you know, who've been dating for a few years and get married when once you're stuck with each other, you're like, who is this person? Yeah. And I think that that's something I wanted to explore with the way Leah thinks about Henry and with the town where you have an idea of who a person is or what a place is and that the process of getting to know like the really messy reality of a person or a place. It's just something that fascinates me, um, sort of, and, and how painful it can be to let go of of your idealized version of a person or a place. Like how that almost feels like like a loss. There's a there's a part in the book where where Leah's really grappling with this, and, and I think she really keenly feels the loss of the Henry that she thought that she married, like like a death almost. Um, and then she has to ask herself if like the person she realizes 
he is as someone she could love or not, almost as if he's a stranger. Um, and I don't know, I think it's something that most people do experience. And I really wanted to talk about sort of the grieving and the grieving and the growing up that comes with giving up your idealized imaginary idea of a person. Tell me a little bit about Quinn's character and, and what you wanted her to represent or be in the novel. Quinn's journey has a lot to do with sort of the aftermath of losing her mom. And I think that she's a character who outwardly seems like sort of a mess, but inwardly is is kind of a, I don't know, a pillar of strength. I think she, she took care of her mother for so long. And now all of a sudden she's sort of realizing she has all these unresolved parts of her own life that she has to deal with. And so she does go searching for her dad, which is part of dealing with losing her mom, but also just wondering, like, when she's so unattached like that, like, who who is my family? Like, now I, I don't literally have any family here, but I can go find them. There are these people who could be in my life. And I think that when she meets Rosie, her roommate, and she falls in love with her, it's sort of her realizing, like, oh, I can... I can choose my family, maybe. Like, there are people who you can ask to be in your life and you can forge these relationships with and sort of build your own family. And she does have that, but then she realizes that there are also people like her dad who she, she doesn't know if she wants to have a relationship with or not who are sort of in your life whether you like it or not. So the ways in which you can and cannot choose your own family. There are people who you have to deal with and take on their own terms. And then there are people who there's this sort of beautiful thing where you can introduce them into your life and they'll introduce you into their life. And then that's the kind of bond that you you forge by choice. There is one section that I just wanted to talk about briefly, which is Leah was possibly putting her whole relationship with her husband on the line when she was writing, um, not under her byline, but helping the publisher and Quinn write a whole sort of expose of this land that was bought by these private landowners that um, maybe had some nefarious activities with the city for them to be able to achieve their dreams on the land. And her husband worked for them. And then she has this realization that this thing that she's working on so hard is just sort of one day that her story will be used to wrap up fishes. It will line the floors of pet cages. It will get crumpled into balls and used for kindling. It will blow down the docks. And it doesn't matter. It's sort of like this thing that you work so hard for in a newspaper is just one day in tomorrow's garbage. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you were thinking about and if you ever worked for a newspaper you know, I've never actually written for a newspaper, but I think that there's something about, um, I mean, I guess the process of sending a piece of writing, any piece of writing out into the world where, I mean, it just, it leaves you and your involvement with it is done and like hopefully someone finds it. And that's the second part of the equation where it makes some sort of a difference to them. Um, but I think that process of letting letting go of the piece of writing is one that, that most writers think about a lot. Um, and in Leah's case here, I, I think that this is sort of the moment where she realizes that, like, she has all these thoughts and personal values and things she wants to do, um, but that the things that she does alone are, are not going to have the sticking power for her emotionally in her life that her relationship is and that she's been prioritizing um making things on her own instead of like forging this this 
communal want with her husband of what they want to do together. And and I think that she maybe thinks about the, the piece of writing that's gone into the world as, as not as significant in that moment. Um, and she's thinking more about the relationships in her life instead. Did you ever feel like that with the book? It, it's a hard tension. I mean, when you're alone in your room, I had... I used to be a nanny for these two little girls, and I would pick them up from school, and they would tell me, like, what what do you do all day? And I was like, I'm a writer. You guys know that. I'm a writer. They're like, yeah, I know that, but, like, what do you do? And I explained to them, and eventually one day they said, oh, we get it. Um, They're your imaginary friends. You play with your imaginary friends all day. They said, no, no, it's, it's much more serious than that. It's certainly not like imaginary friends, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that they weren't totally wrong. And I think that it is so important to me, the time I spend writing. Um, and I can't think of it as just my imaginary friends because then I'll, I'll never do the things I want to do. But but I do think that it's important to be a person with a life too. And this is another part of sort of the, the lone wolf writer myth that I, I'm not a big fan of because I think that if you don't keep on living and growing and changing as a person, if you're always just sitting in your room, sort of spinning in your head with your imaginary friends, um, the writing, there's new elements of sort of like chaos and wonder and knowledge aren't going to work their way into your writing. So yeah, sometimes, sometimes when I'm working really intensely, I will remind myself to sort of go out and be with people um, or just be out in the world in general so that I remember that those experiences will make my writing better as well. Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, absolutely. So I have this beautiful million-year-old copy here of Henderson the Rain King by Saul Bellow, which um, is one of my favorite books. And I guess I'll, I'll read you the passage, which is just the very beginning of it, and then I'll tell you why I picked it. What made me take this trip to Africa, there is no quick explanation. Things got worse and worse and worse, and pretty soon they were too complicated. When I think of my condition at the age of 55, when I bought the ticket, all is grief. The facts begin to crowd me, and soon I get a pressure in the chest. A disorderly rush begins. My parents, my wives, my girls, my children, my farm, my animals, my habits, my money, my music lessons, my drunkenness, my prejudices, my brutality, my teeth, my face, my soul. I have to cry, no, no, get back, curse you, let me alone. But how can they let me alone? They belong to me, they are mine, and they pile into me from all sides. It turns into chaos. However, the world in which I thought so mighty an oppressor has moved its wrath from me. But if I am to make sense to you people and explain why I went to Africa, I must face up to the facts. I might as well start with the money. I am rich. From my old man, I inherited $3 million after taxes, but I thought myself a bum and had my reasons, the main reason being that I behaved like a bum. But privately, when things got very bad, I often looked into books to see whether I could find some helpful words, and one day I read, the forgiveness of sins is perpetual and righteousness first is not required. This impressed me so deeply that I went around saying it to myself, but then I forgot which book it was. It was one of thousands left by my father, who had written a number of them. And I searched through dozens of volumes, but all that turned up was money. For my father had used currency for bookmarks, whatever he happened to have in his pocket, five, tens, or twenties. Some of the discontinued bills of 30 years ago turned up, the big yellow backs. For old time's sake, I was glad to see them, and locking the library door to keep out the children, I spent the afternoon on a ladder shaking out books, and the money spun to the floor. 
but I never found that statement about forgiveness. I really, I love Saul Bellow so much. Um, and I think that reading Henderson was really important to me. I, I read it first when I was probably 18, and then I read it again in my 20s. And the thing that made such an impression on me was the directness of the way he writes. I feel like I'd been writing a bunch of stories that were trying to be sneaky and subtle and elusive. They're probably bad Hemingway knockoffs, to be honest. And I think that this book really reminded me that a character can just come out and say things sometimes, um, perhaps unreliably in the case of Henderson. But the idea that he comes out and says, like, I was miserable and I had to go to Africa and I found money instead of forgiveness and what am I doing? And that was so refreshing to me to find that in his book. Can you read something that you wrote that was either tricky or something you feel like you changed a lot um, until its final form or something that you feel you succeeded at? Yeah, so this is a section from um, one of Quinn's chapters of The From Aways. And I think I had a lot of trouble at first writing the character of her mother because her mother is already gone by the time the book starts, but she's so important to Quinn. And I think that writing a character not actively in scene, but only in flashback, it's, it's almost like a resurrection where you have to get it just right the moment that that person really shows who they are and, and you can see who they, how they are important to the character who's thinking about them. And so I, I struggled with this passage a lot, but in the end I felt like this is the Marta, I really, Quinn's mother, Marta, who I wanted to show to readers. My mother loved birds. Back in Connecticut, we heard the morning doves when we woke up and the barred owls dolefully hooting at night. Sometimes she'd point out an owl sleeping in the hollow of a tree, the hole seemingly stuffed with fluff, and all this was fine until she started hooting at them. She'd stand out on our wraparound deck and hoot and hoot, trying to call the owls down. I gave her a lot of shit for that. I said she was going to become the crazy bird lady of Mystic, but she kept at it. I got looks, a mix of pity and disgust from our neighbors, from the cigar-smoking ones, the compulsive laundry-drying ones, and especially the just-clearing fix from my yard, which is the thinnest damn excuse for spying ever once. But did they want to take care of her? One night, Marta slid open the glass door, her body set against the black, and said, Quinn, come here. I went out into the dark, into the spring cold, and stood on the deck with my mother. She was barefoot and wore a white nightgown, the kind with cutouts at the bottom. The hem swirled around her ankles as she paced around the deck, calling between cupped hands, Hoo, 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 hoo. It's cook who cooks for you, she said. That's what it sounds like. They're called. Who cooks for you? So I sat on the deck railing, feet dangling like a child, as I smoked through half a pack of cigarettes, and my mother continued hooting. Then, dead silently, this owl the size of a football came and perched on a branch not three feet from the deck. He had drag queen eyes, that owl, rimmed in black with a weird filmy lid that slid back and forth instead of blinking, and a white mask like a Venn diagram. His head sat densely on his chest, no neck to speak of, and he did not so much cock his head as rotate it around. The strong yellow curve of his beak barely parted when he hooted, but she was right. My mother in the moonlight, her white nightgown bright in the dark, the soft bulge of her freckled arms exposed to the air, was right. This owl was asking a question. I thought about my answer, who cooks for you? Is that like, who does your dirty work, or is it more like, who loves you? One of my mother's favorite expressions was, can it be both? She resolved all manner of crises this way. And I think that was the case with who cooks for you, but it might mean both of those things. So tell me about why you chose this. I think that 
when I was trying to really evoke Marta for for Quinn, that that there are two parts to her in Quinn's mind. There's the part where she has this sort of responsibility to her, and she feels like she had to be the child. Uh, she had to be the, the adult, and her mother was sort of the child in their relationship a lot of the time, where she was taking care of her, and how Marta was sort of crazy and erratic, and most of the time that drives Quinn crazy. But in this moment, even though she's sort of hesitant, being like, oh, yeah, my crazy mother doing this thing again, there's this moment where she, she sees what Marta sees in the world just for a moment when the owl actually shows up. Um, and I think that that's a moment where she really understands and loves her mother, not like in spite of all of her craziness and difficulty, but inclusive of it. Um, and I think that's a hard thing for a person to do. And I really wanted to show how Quinn struggled with it, but like had this brief moment of success because so much of the other times with Marta, we see the difficulty and I wanted to kind of give them a moment together that would show, I don't know, them, them having a more, a more loving, magical moment. Where do you write? I have a very beautiful little office in my home that I do not write in at all because <laughs> I wind up getting distracted by pets or instruments or what have you. And so sometimes I write in there, but honestly, I go to a beautiful cafe with a deck on a lake and a bunch of cranky ducks um, that's down the street from me most of the time. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I walk trails in a park that is down um, not so far away from where I live. Um, and I've always done that wherever I live, whenever I'm trying to get away from writing, I just go on long walks in the woods. Um, and that's usually, it's usually a pretty good escape for me. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have that best friend, Cora, I was talking about this, this friend who I know knows me so well that she won't shy away from telling me sort of the hard things that I need to hear about a draft and who will find the same joy in the things that are going well that I do. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, sulking and weeping and moaning, but also, I mean, to be honest, but I think that a lot of the times when I feel, um, when I feel upset or sort of dejected about something, this is silly, but I think that's when I first started watching Cosmos with Carl Sagan, because something about sort of the largeness of, of space and whatnot, I find it deeply therapeutically reassuring. Like, your problems are just not that bad. You are a tiny speck. And I find that that cheesy 70s way that Carl Sagan has of reminding me of that very, very comforting. And what is your favorite word? You know, I just, I, I declared just a month ago, I've been reading a lot of Nabokov, and, and I called up my boyfriend and I said, my favorite word is caterpillar. I have realized this and now. I've never had a favorite word before, but caterpillar is my favorite word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was C.J. Hauser, author of the novel The Fromaways. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.